Hello and welcome to the Overthinking It TV recap of Game of Thrones Season 4, Episode 5, First of His Name. My name is Pete Fenzel. I'll be your cruise director on tonight's excursion into the north, the south, the east, the west, and all points in between. And I am joined by a fine cadre of overthinkers tonight. Welcome to everyone watching us live on the stream on YouTube. Always exciting to be able to do this. Uh, hope that you guys are having a great time. Remember to tweet at us at, at OverthinkIt. Is overthinking it? Overthinking it. Overthinking it on Twitter. Uh, and we will be watching Twitter in real time to respond to your tweets. And if you're listening to us on the uh, audio podcast off iTunes or PodTracker or another podcast service, have faith in the people that are tweeting at us in real time. Uh, they are like you. They share your interests. And I'm sure they'll represent you well in the questions and answers. And, yeah, if you're watching this in YouTube in a replay, uh, yeah, you can just replay it. If you play this backwards... I'll actually say something about Jon Snow being the walrus. It'll be really fascinating. But uh, without further ado, we have a full episode tonight full of all sorts of uh, institutions and individuals and other assorted uh, power mechanisms and skill sets, as well as uh, basic tasks that people have difficulty accomplishing. So it sounds like another day at the office. But let's kick it around to everybody in the panel. And as always, although the Game of Thrones episodes this season have somewhat wandered away from the thematic uh, co you know, coalescing, the thematic, really the thematic elegance that we would expect from, say, a Mad Men episode, or the thematic straightforwardness we'd expect of, like, a solid Downton Abbey episode, uh, if any of you have a particular opinion about this episode, a way in, an interpretive angle that you'd like to take to start the conversation off as I introduce you, I would be more than thrilled if you would share it with the class. Ladies and gentlemen, in alphabetical order, we start with Ben Adams. Ben, how are you doing? And how You are the Ben Adams, the first of his name, King of Handles, the Roinar, the First Men, uh, and uh, the Protector of the Realm, Defender of the Faith and Protector of the Realm. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing pretty good. I, I was deciding whether or not I needed to ride west and conquer today or podcast, and I mean to podcast today. So that's that's what I'll be doing. All right. Um, but uh, as far as a, a Downton Abbey moment, uh, I had a couple lines that, that I liked that kind of seem portentous, and I think that gets away from the point of the Downton Abbey moment, which is to find something kind of small and doesn't seem quite as portentous that I think provides a way in. And, and so I have a question in my notes, which is just, what what do I make of the lemons in, in the eerie? <laughs> what what about this line they're talking about bringing the two the two boxes or two bushels of lemons? And I think this, this episode had a lot to say about kind of comparative advantage, that lemons are not particularly valuable, presumably in the Reach or High Garden where they grow, but they're extremely valuable here in the Erie where you can't grow them. And that kind of made me think about, you know, Peter Baelish's line about, you know, coming through that, you know, 10,000 men couldn't conquer the Erie. Nobody's ever conquered it. Except that's what he's going to do right then. Is he's conquering the Erie with a couple boxes of lemons and being nice to the people there, and he's conquering the Erie. And I think there's a lot of that in this episode of comparing and contrasting comparative advantage. Mm, that's really interesting. Now, there is a, a longstanding, it's from the sort of book reader perspective, there's a, a contentious fan theory involving Daenerys referencing at one point, I don't remember if she, if she ever says this in the show, that in the place where she grew up in Braavos, there was a lemon tree. And uh, and lemons being a symbol uh, of for Daenerys and whether the lemons actually came from Braavos or they came from somewhere else, whether lemons grow in various places. It, I thought it was interesting that while it's discussed in sort of fandom circles, the role of lemons, where lemons come from, where they're exported to. I was wondering whether that was a little nod to that in the show, but the way you describe it makes perfect thematic sense, that it's a situation of specialization, people doing what they're right. good at versus what right. they're bad at. 
And since we're we're getting talking about the Iron Bank economics is, is front frontmost in this episode, we can talk <laughs> about the Iron Bank later. Right, right, right. Definitely, definitely. Well, let's let's jump to Shana Wowski. Shana, what's your uh, what's your angle? Are you are you uh, are you on the lemon train? Are you? Uh, gr- there's no lemon. Yes, sort of. That's not that's not what I mean. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you can't that. have a lemon party without old dick, right? Uh, Liz Lemon. Different show. Um, Yeah, uh, my Downton Abbey was sort of related from a different angle. Um, It was when Tywin was talking to Cersei about um, her marriage to Loras, and he says that they have to um, marry into that family because you. Um, make these alliances with people you don't trust. If you did trust them, you wouldn't have to marry them because you wouldn't need that kind of alliance because you already trust them. Um, And this episode seemed to me to be primarily about trust and social power. So, like you were saying, Ben, you know, using the lemons to make a friend. Like, it's sort of about like a gift-giving economy. Those weren't the only gifts that were given out uh, this episode, right? Uh, Cersei gave Marcella a ship, which I think is hilarious because it's in Dorne, mostly a desert. Um, uh, what do you call him? Dario gave Danny a navy, which she is not going to use, but, you know, nice effort, Dario. Um so you have all these people sort of trying to win each other over with gifts or just with niceness, as you said, uh, Ben. And even with regards to the Iron Bank, I forget if it was uh, Tywin, I was probably Cersei, who said, oh, we'll just send someone over there and try to make a deal, like use our social power. Like everyone knows that we always pay our debts. We have, you know, people have this idea of us. So we could just go and schmooze with this guy at the Iron Bank and he'll give us a break on the debts. Might not happen, but at least she thinks so. And of course, you have that final scene of the episode which shows what happens when you don't have trust or you don't have a social bond, where uh, Craster's daughters, you know, uh, kill all of the creepy, rapey, uh, uh, former Night's Watch people, which, you know, previously they hadn't done, even though um, their father or husband was terrible to them, raping them all the time. But they did have a social bond in the sense of they were family, so they didn't, you know, rise up against him in the way they're rising up against these guys now. So that is what I think the lemons have to do with everything else. Oh, all right. Well, it's it the uh, the lemon tree grows. Uh, so, Matt Rather, what's your take on this episode? Oh. I yeah. Until Shana got to it, I was going to say you guys have your little lemon party. Uh, I'm going to, uh, but she she beat me to it. There are actually two lemon party jokes in in thirty thirty rock. I think people missed the first one, um, and so they did the second one with uh, Liz's father, Dick Lemon. Um, my my. Uh, the the thing that I wanted to to point out was um, the sense the sense of I I mean I don't know it's it's hard as you say uh, because it's hard it's hard to pull out a particular scene because this episode doesn't have the kind of thematic unity that uh, Game of Thrones episodes have uh, had before that Downton Abbey episodes uh, have always had and um, that we have come to expect you know. But uh, but it it struck me that the, that there were a lot of sort of secrets revealed. There was a, there was a lot of like hidden information that was brought to light from one character uh, by one character to another. Um, 
there, you, there's a lot of talk about like the power behind the power uh, in in this in this episode, right? Or the the kind of the secret structure that that undergirds um, that undergirds a lot of the manifest content of behavior in Westeros, or as uh, as the Hound says, Westeros. So I don't know. I don't know now whether it's uh, whether you whether you accent the first syllable or the the um, last syllable. But in Westeros, they have uh, they you know they have like um, the Iron Bank of Bravos, right? As the sort of economic uh, economic structure undergirding the whole thing, and you know the Lannisters haven't mined any gold in a long time. Um, it was a good line from Tywin, right? Good, good dialogue writing. Uh, you know, is it is it ounces, pounds, or tons? It's it's the same no matter how you measure it. Um, but the way he describes the Iron Bank of Bravos, which I thought was interesting, it's like a temple, and you pull one stone away. The temple is made of stones, and the people are stones in the temple, and you pull one stone away, and they just resettle, and another another stone uh, takes its place. It's a structure that's sort of adaptable. Um, it's a structure that's sort of adaptable because it's because of what we would think of as a weakness, right? Because of not being rigid. And, and I just sort of contrast that in my mind with Brienne's armor and the way armor was sort of foregrounded with Pod taking off Brienne's armor, being her squire. And, uh, and also the hound's armor, where Arya's, um, you know, uh, small pointy sword uh, couldn't penetrate his armor. Um, and you know, he he was talking about uh, Merwin, Merwin Trant, right? Who uh, had a big, who had armor and a big sword, um, which is a dick thing, of course. But it's also like uh, it's it's a, a dick thing, but it's also um, it's also something that the series has given lie to before when uh, uh, Braun right uh, wins the duel uh, up in the Erie, which was brought up again today, right? In the book, it's it's made clear that he has like you know I don't know some leather clothes and it's uh, and and not a big suit of armor and it's in fact his superior agility uh, and maneuverability that that win that. Um, win that battle for him. He's adaptable. The Iron Bank is adaptable. It doesn't sort of, it doesn't matter what the conditions of the world uh, are. The Iron Bank keeps coming like a, like a T-1000 that just sort of melts into a different, uh, that just sort of melts into a different form. I don't know if that makes any sense, Pete. What did, what did you think was the uh, was the paradigmatic scene from this episode? I, I had the same one you did. I, I 100% thought the paradigmatic scene of the episode was Tywin talking about the temple and the Iron Bank of Bravos. And I think it works with everything that we've been saying. So it's about the shape of the institution that is maintained even as parts of the institutions come and go. The ship of Theseus problem is one potential thing that's related to this sort of thing, right? And so if we go through, what are the instances of this happening in the show? Well, Joffrey is gone, that stone has been removed, and he's been replaced by Tommen. So that's one case of it, right? And then in Daenerys' case, she went into uh, Yunkai and Astapor, and she kicked out the slavers, and she left, but then they just settled back into place, and they continue to do what they're doing, right? Um, you know, these, these sort of institutions that are, that are happening. Um, 
then uh, gosh, and I'm trying I'm trying to think of sort of the, the other examples. Well, like you know, Brienne keeps going and things change. You know, like like what Podrick is now squiring for Brienne instead of for Tommen, and is there some sort of continuity in what he's doing there? Um, and and I then also the sort of relentlessness of what Bran's mission has to be. And according to Jojen, this sort of seeing the future, this idea that Bran's quest is also kind of a temple that uh, you can remove his individual stones from it. You can have things that come in and try to disrupt it, but it's inevitable and he needs to go and he needs to fulfill this particular sort of destiny. Uh, I think it's related to what Ben was talking about with economics and comparative advantage, that there are these relationships that are ingrained and that are structural and that affect the way that people behave in large numbers or in association with the apportionment of resources. And these these sort of ways of working together, whether they're institutional or they're informal or what have you, they persist even as individual people come and go. Um, and so if the episode is about being the first of his name, it's kind of about legacy. You know, what is your, what is your legacy? How do you build a legacy? What, how is an individual person capable of a legacy? Uh, and also on top of that, if you are an individual person who is seeking out to do things in your own interest, in what ways is the world friendly or unfriendly to that sort of way of behaving? So Circe is the one who is at odds with this way of thinking more than anyone because she doesn't, she's not okay with Joffrey being killed. She's not okay with Joffrey being replaced. And her conversation with Oberyn Martell that leaves him somewhat confused is about, you know, oh, well, we have all this power. Why can't we save the people that we love? And the answer is because there's stones in the temple. Like, if our power is derived from our place in the temple, then, you know, and the temple maintains its shape, even as the stones are removed, then our power has nothing to do with the stones. It has everything to do with the temple. Now, the converse of that, with the metaphor that Tywin used, is that temples don't really work that way, right? Like, you can remove stones from a temple, but the temple is eventually going to fall down. Temples don't just grow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, Pete, when the temple falls down, you can rebuild it in three days. I think we've established <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. See, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Ben. I interpreted that metaphor a little differently. I, too, thought it was a really good, great theme, but I interpreted that a little differently. I thought he was saying, kind of contrasting the way the Iron Bank works to the way a lot of Westerosi society works, because you get the sense the Iron Bank, it doesn't matter who the, I don't know what their corporate structure is, but it doesn't matter who it the It doesn't CEO, matter who your board of directors is. Right, it doesn't matter who the CE, current CEO of the Iron Bank is. Like, you can send somebody to go treat with them, and you have a plan that, you know, if you're going to, you know, do diplomacy with the Iron Bank, your plan doesn't really depend on who's in charge when you get there. But that's completely different than Tommen and Joffrey where it isn't just a one-for-one one replacement with one stone fitting into the, the space left by the last, because Tommen is completely different from Joffrey. That's the, like, so, and I think that that's the case with a lot of characters in Game of Thrones, where it's really, really important not that there's someone in that role, but that there's a particular person in that role. And that makes them amenable to blackmail and flattery and threats and bribery and all the things that Cersei, all the cards that Cersei is used to playing and she th she wants to play against the Iron Bank, and um, Tywin is saying that's not going to work with these guys because they're a they're just interchangeable stones that you can't get to just one guy in the Iron Bank and fix your problem. You you have a problem with the entire institution. That's I mean it, you know Pete when Pete was talking about it doesn't matter he was referencing the Rock, but it it leads me back to uh, Wyclef Jean's song. Uh, it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> So also right exactly Wycliffe John featuring the Rock I I ought to have said uh, right like in in the chorus the last lines are are of the chorus are uh, if you ain't Sharon people ain't Karen 
come up it in the hood and they matter. take come up <laughs> in the hood and they take everything you're wearing. Uh, and that's um, that's what's going to happen to that. I mean, it's not. It, I'm not just being whimsical. I actually think that that's. I think that that's right. Like Cer- Cersei doesn't want to share. And one of the remarkable things about about Cersei in this episode, like her. Her, I thought her scene with Marjorie, and we all thought her scene with Marjorie was going to go a completely different way than it ended up, uh, than it ended up going. And and I just want to I want to call out like in a um, a season that has had some sort of problematic. So I hate the word problematic. I'm sorry. Tu, 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 I'm banishing it from my vocabulary. Um, that's had some bullshit with uh, <laughs> with uh, the as regards the women. Um, the uh, I just want to like just want to hang a lantern on um, Lena Headey's performance being like fantastic and bringing humanity and depth and nuance and texture to a role that like a- in the books is is often like a shrewish harridan. Uh, she's um, she is just awesome. And just the kind of the the sorrowful look on her face and the sense of resignation when she has that conversation uh, with with Marjorie, it, you know, I don't know, speaks volumes. And then the the second conversation with Oberyn, right, like speaks volumes about the pain that she's been through, and and really kind of what's made her what's made her the way she is, and why she has uh, why she feels like she only has recourse to um, the kinds of tricks, the kinds of exercise of power by exercise of soft power uh, that that she's known for. Mm-hmm. Interesting, Shana. Do you have any thoughts about this uh, this stuff? Well, I liked your um, connection of this uh, stone temple stone temple. But no, Stone Temple analogy um, and connecting that to the Ober and Cersei conversation. And I wonder if we could sort of extrapolate if when a child dies, like in the case of Joffrey, that's one of the stones being taken out and the temple or the institution of, uh, you know, the king is still there. Okay, but then next, what Cersei says is, okay, we can't protect our kids, but we can avenge them. So I wonder if in this metaphor, that would be akin to just burning the whole damn temple down, which is, you know, basically what happens at the end of the episode where, you know, Craster's daughters are like, we are burning this house to the ground. And I wonder if maybe this is the end goal of certain characters, like maybe Cersei, when you realize that... Everyone is sort of interchangeable, and you can't protect the ones you want. You can't get what you want, even with your soft power. Maybe the only recourse is to just destroy everything, even if it's your own family, even if it's the economic system of all of Westeros. Maybe that's the only path she can go down now. Maybe not yet, because Tommen is, you know, he, he might do okay, but I feel like Cersei is maybe moving in the, that direction of sort of like uh, the uh, woman who has to watch the world burn is what I'm hoping mm. anyway. There's, there's certainly apocalypse all over this show, right? There's all manner of, like, potential apocalypses, people creating their own personal apocalypses, large-scale cosmic apocalypses, uh, and the idea that you know, in the in the 
uh, what is it? Um, you know, in, in you eye for you know eye for an eye until everyone is blind kind of situation. I mean, when if you think about one person can be replaced by another person, do you think about that as kind of the 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 thing that's positive at the beginning of this little syllogism between Circe and Oberyn, and then Circe's like, well, we lose this child, and we can't replace this child with another child, and then Oberyn's like, well, we can avenge them. Well, what does that mean? Well, it kind of means replacing the dead child with another dead person, right? Like, and, and so, okay, like, well, there's a symmetry, there's a replacement that's happening, you're, but you're not improving the situation, right? And this is the case where the temple is starting to, starting to come apart. But yeah, yeah, I think, um, and, and that's, that's also something that Daenerys wrestles with, uh, right? Like this idea of whether she's murdering, not murdering, but like whether she's destroying the slavers or whether she's going to rule uh, Marine and Astapor and Yunkai, right? This idea of, should I turn toward this point where it's just scorched earth, right? Like um, it's something and she, when she decided to crucify the, the masters, uh, the wise masters or whatever they were known as um, on the road, on the way. Uh, to to the next city was as an example of something like that. Um, so yeah, so oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I, I I was going to pivot to a new topic, but if you have one, you go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, I, I just wanted to say that it, it, I'm really I'm really uh, I'm really pleased that that George R. R. Martin and the showrunners have come to the conclusion that really the banks should run the government because they <laughs> clearly are not susceptible to a lot of the problems that the individuals are. Uh, so no, Matt, go ahead. You can jump to another topic. It was it, it was better when we were still on the iron standard, isn't that right? <laughs> Got to pay the iron price with zero percent APR. Look, what if Tommen just securitizes all of the debt in Westeros <laughs> <laughs> and tranches it into like an A, B, and a C? Uh, you know. Anyway, so so you have these collateralized sword obligations. The seven <laughs> tranches: the mother tranche and the strength. <laughs> You don't want the crone tranche or the <laughs> the Smith tranche is like looks solid, but really, it, yeah, it's having some problems. Absolutely right. Yeah, you wanna you wanna rebalance your you wanna rebalance your seven tranches uh, automatically every quarter. Um, <laughs> there is only there is only one tranche. <laughs> uh, the account is dark and full of terror. <laughs> so. Um, so it it struck me how many times we have non-romantic uh, male-female pairings in this um, in this uh, episode, right? Like, uh, uh, I, oh God, let's let's do them. Like Daenerys and literally everybody, uh, uh, Natalie Dormer and Tommen. What's her name? Marjorie and Tommen, which like you know. Uh, I don't know. He, he, I guess it's romantic in in the sense that he has kind of a funny feeling down in his swimsuit area that he doesn't quite understand when she walks by. But uh, but you know, I don't know. He's not um, capable of that, right? Like Cersei and Tywin, Cersei and Oberyn, uh, uh, right? And th these sort of uh, the Hound and Arya. And I and on and on and on. I mean, we could just do uh, uh, Podrick and and Brienne, and and we have these sort of we have these sort of alliances, right? And and so so much of the show um, seems to like seems to insist that the thing that men and women do together is get super rapey, and and in this uh, in this episode. There are these sort of there are these sort of non-romantic uh, alliances. These these you know um, uh, these pairings that are sort of task-oriented or goal-oriented, uh, 
and they all um, they all have kind of built in uh, an instability. Um, the the one that that comes to mind right now is Arya and the Hound, where you know she's at the end of his uh, she's at the end of his list of names. Um, by the way, that wide shot while Arya is doing her you know doing her sort of martial arts sword practice and and uh, down by down by the river that like wide shot of the little uh, the little valley or canyon or whatever that she's in. Man, I would like to go to Northern Ireland. Goodness, it looks beautiful, doesn't it? I definitely when I when I saw that, I definitely thought she moves like the water. <laughs> it's like it's I, I remember my notes that that's Arya's Soul Caliber demo, and she's like this the spiraling camera shot and the the glittering water and the spinning around her head. It was all it made me want to mash buttons. It, you know, there's a line from Yates from the play The Long Legged Fly, and he's talking about um, Helen Helen of Troy. Uh, and and describing her kind of dancing through Troy and and Yates says that she thinks part woman and three parts child that nobody looks right and and Arya kind of has this because she's on she's on this cusp of being uh kind of made into an adult before her time because of all the killy killy that's gone on uh in her family and, and that's and, that's not a soul caliber reference that's right. that's yeah. <laughs> and uh you know and um and also, like she sort of thinks that nobody's, she thinks that nobody's watching. She's kind of caught up. She's caught up in her in her thing, right? Like she doesn't quite yet, I think, understand her comparative advantage, right? What Littlefinger says about, um, like, know your strengths and like just just play those, play play to your strengths. I mean, he's a master at sort of reading the terrain and figuring out the the correct line of of attack. And and Arya, uh, awesome though she is, kind of hasn't hasn't learned that. Doesn't quite understand the kind of interaction that she's in uh, with um, Clegane. What's his first name? Sandor with Sandor Clegane, right? She's she's a uh, she thinks she's she's uh, playing one kind of. She thinks she's in one kind of game, and she's actually uh, in another um, with him. Ditto Daenerys, I think, right? Like, doesn't understand her, doesn't understand her, her advantage. It made me think, while you were talking about this episode having a lot of couples in it, and then thinking still about the temple, and both Ben's uh, looking at it as um, the individuals matter versus the individuals don't matter. It made me think about the Bear and the Maiden Fair episode, which is one of the structural episodes that drew a lot of attention on our recaps, which was about pairings where one person in the pairing desires the other person in the pairing, but the other person in the pairing has sort of a social divide or, or a, a sort of a sort of a lack of desire that makes the relationship asymmetrical. And there's this energy of desire and this desire for consummation, either literal or metaphorical, that follows a lot of the relationships in the show. And those relationships are like Jamie and Brienne and John and Egret, um, right? And then like that people are kind of chasing after these things, and Jorah and Daenerys. Uh, but this episode was more about you know, the relationships. And I don't, and I mean relationships as in these are people who have kind of, even if they're just newly together, it feels like they've been together for a while. And whatever their immediate gratifications might have been at one point, it's not really something that they're after at the moment, right? So, you know, Cersei sort of submitting, you know, conceding rather that she she's not going to get what she wants with regards to the resolution of her situation with her child. And I thought that 
the way that she communicated her desire for vengeance against Tyrion reflected a kind of lack of bloodlust. And it was much more sort of like, this is an inevitable thing that has to happen, but not much like, I want to kill him. Uh, but if you think about Peter, uh, Peter Baelish being uninterested in consummating his relationship with Le his, his marriage with Lisa Aaron, you know, uh, if you think about the look on Jorah's face when Daenerys was talking, which was just like, so kind of like, you know, he, the lines on his face were just so massively like lit and made up to make him look uh, not at all like he was posturing for a romantic interest, much more like he has been through this great deal of, of suffering and difficulty with her, a different sort of different sort of history. And even, um, you know, Podrick and Brienne, there's a familiarity that is established through their talking, which is much more about, like, we need to communicate and understand each other because he does all these annoying things that I don't like, right? And, and, uh, and, she, and he's like, I don't know what she wants, and I have no idea what to do with myself, and I feel ridiculous, right? Like, but they're not at the point where it's like, you know, we are on an adventure and we're going to fight. It's at the point where it's like, you don't even know how to ride a horse or cook a rabbit. And he's like, I know, it's... Um, it's my penis is too big. I can't ride this horse. I'm sorry. I just I'm Podrick Payne. But um, but yeah, yeah. It just seemed like we're at a point where people are learning to make do and, and move on with each other. Um, although I did I did to reference something you've said a couple times, Matt, and really calling out the the on the at this point kind of flagrant, schlocky, and unnecessary rapiness of the world, which has gone past the point of necess of necessity. When they showed the Night's Watch guy, like Carl or whoever it was, throwing that woman out in the snow, I literally said aloud, using a word you used uh, recently, welcome to bullshit town, population bullshit. <laughs> Just like, this, this story's happening, don't care. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> and I'm glad that we had Jojen Reed uh, with the magical power of the fourth wall to inform us that no, none of this happens in the books, so you can't go talk to John because then permanent things would change in the story and we have to be able to get you through these filler arcs before you find the tree. Um, what do you guys think about that storyline, about the, the, Jojen, the Jojen visions, the sight, right? Like, I'll see you die, I'll see your body burned and covered in snow, his foresight with Bran and, and uh, Yggdrasil or what have you, the, the, tree, the world tree that Bran is going after. Uh, what were you guys' thoughts about that whole subplot? I always like when uh, I, I always like when the Stark uh, children have a near miss, you know, uh, because it like but the whole premise of this world is that we're going to kill Ned Stark in the first book. And this is not the sort of world that you think it is. Right. This is not the sort of swords and sorcery. Uh, great chain of being, high fantasy world where everyone's honorable. And uh, right. This is a world of of. Uh, of you know, where the people are stones in the temple, right? And they, they, you know, you knock them out, and another one, another one comes, right? And and um, and that, you know, that that sort of early early death. I mean, early not from the point of view of the the first book, which is plenty long, but early from the point of view of the uh, from the point of view of all five books thus far, which is long, plenty long. Um, it went when uh, when the Stark children come. In, into contact with one another, it, it sort of highlights the pathos of that. And for me, sort of reminds me that like, uh, that their reunions, you might sort of long for them to, to reunite and to take some kind of solace or to get some sort of increased strength, you know, from the fact that they're, that they're reuniting. And alas, it, it, uh, it isn't to be. I agree that like, you know, I don't know, right, like uh, it, it seems that, that Jojen's power is that he's read the books 
um, and that you know he knows how they he knows how they end, uh, or or at least how they um, go up through book five. Uh, but uh, he's yeah I don't know I mean getting captured at Craster's I'm I'm not sure. I guess you have to. I guess you have to do something with them because they they do really just disappear from most of three and well, no spoilers, but uh, uh, you got to do something with them. But it does. Uh, one thing I'll say for it is that it provides an opportunity to um, it provides an opportunity to have another one of these uh, near miss moments. Mm-hmm. And we got to see uh, Hodor Unchained, wanna, which is always um, exciting. Oh, you, oh. Shana. Sorry, I uh, I just uh, I wanted to sort of agree and sort of disagree with you, Matt, um, about the way Jojen's scene sort of I, I guess he had two big scenes, but uh, operated within this episode um, because you were saying that it and it's true that uh, this is a world that doesn't normally operate the way sword and sorcery fantasy stories work. It's supposed to be grittier or more realistic or whatever you want to call it. Um, on the other hand, Jojen is the one who is like the meta character, as he said. He, he uh, broke the fourth wall and you could see this tree behind it. And if he read the book, or he's the guy who sort of has read the book in this weird world, what he sees in the future is something that is... <sighs> more vibrant, um, less gritty than what we normally see. It's this big, beautiful tree. It's daylight. Um, the colors are just very flashy. It l- looks like, I mean, like a Final Fantasy game or something. You know, it, um, it does look like Bran is on the way through a gritty, terrible fantasy world that's not really like a fantasy world, but he's moving in the direction towards a more stereotypical or more idealistic fantasy world, if that makes any sense. Like, the story so far has broken um, or, you know, sort of gotten around most of the tropes we associate with these uh, types of stories, but there is also, you know, this future that we're looking toward that is a destiny, and destinies, you know, that unless Brand doesn't actually live up to the destiny that Jojen has said, it is going to possibly become your sort of Lord of the Ringsy type story. Or do you guys disagree? Like, do you go think we are actually? You're a wizard. You need to go to wizard school, yes. right? Like- like, you have to meet the three-eyed raven, you know. It does seem like Bran and Jojen and Mira are kind of getting out of um, the Westeros we're used to and moving into a different story world, I guess is what I meant to say. Yeah, north of the right north of the Wall, where, uh, um, I don't know, yeah, maybe all of north of the Wall, maybe that's Middle-earth up there. And this is after, like, a long ice age that's wiped out Middle-earth and uh, they built a wall to keep Middle Earth up north. Maybe this is Lower you know Earth. What, you know what they said in the wall, right? Which is that if you uh, if you don't eat your meat, you can't have any pudding, right? And how can you have your pudding if you don't eat your meat? That's from the wall, right? Right. Yeah, and that was what Sansa talked about with her mom, right? Her mom was like, you have to eat dessert first, or don't eat dessert. 
I don't even know. What was the deal? Can we, can we talk about Sansa and Lisa Aaron and that weird bipolar scene? Wow, yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow, well, I'm glad we didn't get any of, of, you know, the Lord of the Eerie breastfeeding anymore because these these people are just creepy sick. That's That's definitely true. So, like, we saw... So, it's funny because, for me, upon reading the books, the revelation that... Peter Baelish masterminded the assassination of John Aaron was a huge revelation and right. it totally changed everything that happened in the story up until this point. And I felt like in this episode it just sort of showed up. Maybe it's because I knew it was there, but I mean, I watched the show with my girlfriend. Hi. And, uh, and she didn't know that was happening and she didn't seem particularly surprised. I mean, I had to explain it to her again because it, like the scene was kind of quiet and hard to hear. Uh, we had to we had to change the volume on my TV a lot for this episode. So not kudos to the sound sound mixer or sound editor, whichever one is responsible for that. But uh, very cinematic, which meant not particularly great for listening. But uh, but yeah, like what what about that as like not really being a, a sort of climactic revelation and something they kind of throw in at the be like half third of the way through the episode. Well, the 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 thing that kind of threw me about that reveal was it's one thing Game of Thrones does very very well for such a plot and exposition heavy show is having actually pretty good reveals and relatively naturalistic conversations. Whereas this was your classic TV show, like I am character A, I'm going to tell you a thing that we both know is for the benefit of the audience. <laughs> Where it's just like we both know these things clearly, but I'm going to mention it anyway. <laughs> Um, and so it just came off as very kind of TV-ish and exposition-y um, in a way that Game of Thrones usually avoids pretty well. And so that might have, you know, detracted from the drama of the reveal a little bit. Hmm. Well, then, as you know, we're, to get, uh, we're together on a recap here, uh, as you know. And uh, I'm responding to you now on the, on the recap, and we're... Um, yeah, and I, it it struck me that almost the um, the uh, he sort of stops her by kissing her, by grabbing her and planting one right on her, right on the kisser. And uh, it struck me that this was a move directed more toward the audience than toward any other uh, character, but then to any other character that might be listening, because I don't think anyone was listening. At the time, it's almost like don't tell the people at home uh, about that. <laughs> well, it's funny. The, the the words he used is uh, something along the lines like speaking makes it real, which in this sense is very very true because the only speaking in the context of a fictional thing is the only thing that makes it real. Like he didn't poison John Aaron until somebody on the actual screen told us that he was the one who poisoned John Aaron. Like that's right. like a no, just, so it's just, that that is definitely a very self-conscious nod. Did we not know that in the books? I, I forget whether we have that tidbit in the in the I mean, books. We, but... we find it out near the end of book three. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, it's like it's a late in the game because because Littlefinger doesn't show up back at the Eyrie until near the end of book three, right? You right. Know, we're after you know the midpoint is the Red Wedding, and that's thus the first the third season is the first half sort of, and then. There's Joffrey stuff and the Hound stuff and all that stuff and but yeah it's like one of the it's like one of the climactic scenes at the end of the at the end of the book so and we're not there yet right there's much more there's more that needs to happen before we we really get to the the big climaxes that that hit there but uh but yeah it was just just interesting that that was something that we only found out now because we haven't we haven't heard that I mean 
John Aaron hasn't really come up in a long time, too. I guess it's a little bit different when it's years, but then again, like it was years between when the books were written. So, <laughs> um, so that's that's totally reasonable. Um, yeah, I mean, it's something about pacing that that you said uh, once, Pete, kind of strikes me now, right? Which is that um, that book three takes a while to uh, ramp up. But once it gets there, once you hit the Red Wedding, it's like it's going and going and going and going and going and like sustains this level of awesome uh, for a very high page count, right? And um, and the series has more uh, – the series has more um, – I don't know, moments of, of repose and sort of ref- reflective moments. It doesn't just, uh, it doesn't just kind of have that, that sustained pace of, of, uh, and that has to do also with sort of following characters who aren't the point of view characters and being able to see, to see other things, right. To see the conversation between Cersei and, and Marjorie, for example. Um, but that, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. It's a different, different kind of pacing, I guess. Yeah, and they, you know, they are, I get the sense that they're kind of, things, the wheels are kind of coming off a little bit this season in terms of the sense of control that they have over the narrative, right? Um, that uh, at least in the first season, I felt like the story progressed in a, a very earned and organic uh, pace and revelations came at appropriate times and there was suspension and tension and it took like a lot of, a lot of focus to maintain the inexorable march toward the ba- the sept of Baylor, toward the pig gutting Robert Baratheon, like all that stuff sort of had to happen in its time. And then you know, Clash of Kings is kind of open ended on both ends. So the second season does that to an extent, and it keeps following, but it promises there's going to be big climaxes later. And then the third season builds up, and it kind of steps one place and another in the middle, and then it hits the big thing at the end. And now this season, it's sort of like they're kind of all over the place in terms of the points of tone and uh, and what is this building towards, like what's the climax of the story going to be, right? Um, I, I don't really see, I mean, I, I can know because I know what happens, like what they'll probably pick uh, as the climax of this season, but I don't... You mean, really as, you mean as, episode, as episode nine? Yeah, well, episode nine is climax of the season. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so so that's okay. one thing... One thing that I think might be so one thing I noticed about this episode is that there were a lot of decisions being made, kind of binary decisions. Uh, most particularly, you had uh, Daenerys' decision west or east. You know, she can stay where she is or she can sail west. And you had Bronn's decision he can go south with Jon Snow or he can go north with Jojen Reed. Um, and then you had less binary decisions, but still there's kind of the Lannisters committing to their alliance with the Tyrells. And you just have a couple other kind of decisions being made along the way. But they're not coupled with actions. You know, I think a lot of times what makes the most exciting episode is where there's both a big decision being made on behalf of a character and a lot of actions. So, like, season one, Joffrey makes this huge decision to kill Ned Stark. And that there's action that accompanies that. And here we have a kind of a decoupling between the decisions that are being made and the action that's going to play out. Like presumably Daenerys decision to stay in Marine is going to have cool battles in the future or something like that. But we don't have those yet. All we have is a woman in a room talking to her advisor saying, okay, I'm going to stay here. Um, And so it's a little less, it's it's harder to to get excited about it at this point, at least. So I've got a tweet in from Paul Packler and he's asking us to go over a little bit Uh, as someone who hasn't read the books 
what are the implications of Littlefinger killing John Aaron? I didn't get the import. So that's something worth reviewing. Uh, Matt, do you want to kick into it? I can I can run through it too. Yeah, sure. The the I mean the idea is that um, Littlefinger actually kind of put the events of the uh, uh, put the events of the whole series in motion, right? If you remember the the inciting incident back in in book one or season one of the story is that Robert Baratheon comes up to Winterfell to bring Ned Stark down to King's Landing to be the hand of the king because John Aaron uh, has died. You know, and there was that. Um, there was actually an interesting callback uh, last uh, last episode uh, to that, where you see Jeffrey uh, Joffrey with the stones on the eyes, um, laying uh, sort of laying in lying in state. And um, we've had that shot for John Aaron back in uh, season one, episode one, that we didn't know who he is. And you, you would have had to be like a, a pretty deep fan of the series at that point in order to, in order truly to understand what was, uh, what was going on there. So, um, so the idea that instead of the Lannisters, John, John Aaron discovering that, um, discovering that uh, Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella are not uh, Robert's children because the uh, the power because the seed is strong, right? Uh, the uh, the power of the the brown hair always the black hair always overcomes the Lannister gold uh, in every um, uh, in every pairing of a uh, Baratheon with a Lannister in all the the books that that uh, all the history books that he reads and in all of his uh, in all of his illegitimate children scattered throughout King's Landing, uh, born to blonde prostitutes. Um, right, uh, we we know that the the three royal children have blonde hair, and and so John Aaron stumbled upon this. Uh, we thought, we assumed that the Lannisters found out and that the Lannisters plotted to kill him. But now we realize that Littlefinger set in motion the whole thing that was the inciting incident for Ned Stark's arrival. Um, and then remember, Littlefinger is the one who turned on, uh, who turned on Ned and got him um, arrested. Uh, and that set uh, the War of the Five Kings. This whole thing was set into motion not by the perfidy of of Cersei and the Lannisters, but by the scheming of Littlefinger. That's that's a very different uh, spin to put on to put on the whole story, right? That he he has sort of set this whole uh, thing in motion by knocking down the first domino. That yeah. was that was long winded, but that's what I think the significance is. Yeah. I think I think just yeah to boil it down simply, uh, Ned Stark. Uh, so Catelyn Stark got a letter from her sister telling her that Cersei had killed John Arryn, or that the Lannister had killed John Arryn. Uh, so Catelyn thought that that Cersei Lannister killed John Arryn. She didn't. Uh, Catelyn thought that Tyrion tried to kill Bran. He didn't. Uh, everybody sort of assumes that Cersei wanted Ned Stark dead. She didn't. Uh, it was an accident. Uh, Cersei was actually not in control of any of the major events, really, that led to the downfall of the House of Stark. Uh, she was unknowingly participating in a lot of them. Um, this, to me, really relates to the line from Jamie during his big bath scene, the big fiery, steamy bath scene, where he says, you know, by what right does the wolf judge the lion? By what right? 
in which he is he's, he's claiming an equivalence. He's claiming a moral equivalence between the interests of the Lannisters and how they exercise them and the interests of the Starks and how they exercise them. But at the beginning of the story, the Lannisters are set up as, I wouldn't say the villains, but the heels, right? And sort of using pro wrestling terminology. They're the heels. They're like the sneering and arrogant people that the crowd doesn't like. Like they walk in and they're like, Hey, Cincinnati, the ugliest town I've ever been to. And everyone's like, boo. Right? And then Ned Stark comes out and is like, hey, everybody, I'm Ned Stark. You all love me because I'm country. And they're like, yay. You know, Finally, so Ned Stark has come back to Cincinnati. <laughs> yay. And, and so, but Jamie is like, I don't understand why everybody thinks the Starks are good guys and I'm the bad guy because I'm the one who saved everybody's life. Now, this is part of why it's such a huge problem to have Jamie rape his sister for no reason in season four. Because it's like, at this point, the story has been, in the, in the books, you know, the story has been moving towards realizing that, yes, Jamie pushed Bran out of a window, and Jamie also killed his, his cousin to escape prison, and he did a bunch of other bad things. But he's not the villain of the story. Uh, in fact, that we're, we, we are eager to jump to the idea that the Lannisters are more of the villains of the story than they actually are. And that, in fact, like, history is kind of muddy, and you can't really, you really know what happens. As Littlefinger says in this episode, this episode, speaking it makes it real. Okay, now the Lannisters aren't the villains. Now Littlefinger's the villain because he's the one who killed everybody, right? Um, and so I think that's kind, of, that's kind of the revelation, right? Like, I mean, even in this case, like, uh, you know, if, if the Red Wedding, right? Like, so Tywin Lannister claims that it's, you know, it's better to kill, you know, a, a thousand people, at a hundred people at a wedding than a thousand people on a battlefield, right? You know, at, at a dinner party, rather, not at a wedding specifically, but at a dinner, than a thousand people on the battlefield or 10,000, right? Like, Tywin Lannister is sort of of the opinion that the Red Wedding was like the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, and it, while it was morally repugnant, it saved lives, and th thus it was necessary. Um, but it's hard to say that if the Lannisters are the ones who started the war in the first place. But they didn't. Littlefinger started the war. Like, he did it through machination, and it was a slow roll, and there were a lot of opportunities that a lot of people had to stop it from happening that they declined to take or screwed up. But ultimately, this whole thing has been Littlefinger's doing, and it's been his doing so that the regime sort of topples in upon him itself to give him opportunities to take advantage of the situation. Uh, so it's a huge turn. It's a huge transformation. And I mean, I think this, the show kind of tipped its hand a little bit by turning Littlefinger into kind of like, I'm going to talk like with my Christian Bale voice when I'm being villainous, right? Like, I'm evil Littlefinger, you know, whereas in the first season he was back with a different accent, didn't he? Like, yeah. he was sort of more Irish sounding and, and also villainous. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so that, that is the answer to your question. I hope that it is satisfactory. I'm not getting any other tweets in from the Twotosphere right now. Um, does anybody have any other thoughts about this episode? I mean, we could talk about, I thought that, uh, I thought that it was really cool. I liked the Sancho Panza shots of Padraig Payne. I remember making that note that when, when uh, Brienne and Padraig Payne were riding down the, uh, down the path, that Padraig Payne felt very Sancho Panza-y, which would identify Brienne as Don Quixote, which says some interesting things about her role as being a knight and what might potentially happen in her story. Maybe, I'm not sure. Um, but I, I thought, thought that was... There was... I mean, there, were, there was an interesting set of... Um... There was an interesting set of reversals in this, right? Like, Pod is the more kind of domesticated one. He is uh, soft uh, from city life. And he, um, I don't know, he, he, uh, is, he tends to sort of hearth and home uh, very badly, right? Like, you don't, you, he did not kill that rabbit uh, for sure, you know? But, uh, but he's the one who's supposed to cook it up 
real nice. And Brienne only gets respect for him after he's like, yeah, I, I, uh, I shot a man on the Blackwater just to watch him die. Uh, and that, that uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. He, he, he has a very specific Squire's resume without, like, the typical skills. His resume is, like, first bullet point, I poured a lot of wine. Second bullet point, I stabbed the guy in the head at the Battle of the Blackwater. And, like, these are his two skills. It's like, Pod, you're kind of burying the lead there. But that's, yeah. I mean, she's she's in the position of this sort of, of uh, uh, on the side of this sort of masculine violence doer. And, and he's in the position of this sort of cowering, you know, of this sort of cowering, sort of feminized uh, violence receiver, and it's only when when Brienne realizes that oh, Pot is a, a violence doer as well, uh, you know, uh, she can accept him. Yeah, I'm 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 a lover and a fighter and a knocker knocker out. Don't take him for a sucker because that's not what he's about. Um, but yeah, that was I thought it was fine. Brienne's hair was looking particularly rough. Since we've been following Brienne's hair and her pants through the source of the entire sh- series or the entire season so far, so Brienne hair update—it's not looking good, people. Things might be getting tough for Brienne in the hair department. Um, yeah, and then I guess what, like uh, Ghost and Hodor, Hodor, Dawn and, and Ghost back together, hooray! Hey, awesome doggy. I wanted, I wanted Ghost to like to <laughs> big lick his face there in front of all the like all of Craster's wives and the 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 brothers and they would all gasp and be like oh, that wild beast he's tamed it <laughs> <laughs> oh yes oh man um but yeah i mean i guess other than that i think that we've we've pretty much gone through the episode first of his name you know all of the legacies all of the specializations you know all of the uh the relationships all of the stuff that uh that really pulls this episode together and um and the, none of the breastfeeding, which was good. And we didn't really get too deep into Alyssa Aaron's bipolar disorder, but I really don't feel like that warrants too much discussion. It's pretty obvious. Um, but yeah, uh, any any last thoughts, Matt or Mark? By the way, uh, Matt or Adam, but uh, by the way, we lost Shayna. Uh, she was tragically killed by uh, Peter Baelish through deliberate machination. No, uh, her internet has crudded out on her. So she has not merely been quiet or silenced. She has been not here for the past 15 minutes. But I think, uh, if Shana, I think if Shana were here, here's what she would say. No, I think if Shana were here, I think I have a pretty good idea what she would say. Right. We're just focusing. It doesn't on- matter. It doesn't matter. So, Ben, I wish I could zoom in this camera on Ben's face right now. Just his look of just total <laughs> peace and total contentment. Don't you, get, you guys are West Coasters. You guys are West Coast Game of Thrones watchers. Like, my brow is all furrowed. You can see where I've been, like, scratching at my brow. Uh, with the with the anxiety of watching the show, but you guys are so chill, you know. Although Matt, you need to get more sun. When you're out in LA, you're not getting any sun, man. Yeah, and my my sensitive pink, my my Brienne esque sensitive pink baby skin does not turn <laughs> color in the sun, except red like a lobster. All right, fair enough. Well, uh, we don't have any lobster for you, but we have some delicious unskinned flaming rabbit. And if you want to share that with us <laughs> first, or if you don't, either way, you know. Bring it on. Join us. Come on this journey with us. There's still a few episodes left. There's a lot of exciting stuff happening on the TV front. we still got Game of Thrones going for a few more episodes. We've got uh, Community going for, I think, a few more episodes. we got 24. Oh, I skipped watching Alive, the season premiere of 24, which I have been looking forward to for years, even though I didn't know what was happening, to do this recap for all of you. So I'm going to watch it that tomorrow. It doesn't matter. No, I know. I know. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. And I, and I hope that it's good enough that it warrants discussion. 
Uh, I talked about the anthropic principle of 24 in my post that we put on the site last night, which is basically like, well, let's assume 24 is good because if it isn't good, nobody's going to be talking about it and nothing that we say will matter. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, watch for that. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, and subscribe. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Get our Eurovision content. Big Eurovision stuff coming up. It's American Idol meets the Olympics, but America isn't there. It's spectacular and crazy, and, and NSYNC is heavily influential in a lot of these acts. Um, so, yeah, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Subscribe to the podcast, uh, the uh, TV Recap Podcast. Check out our main stream podcast. We did a great episode about Star Wars last week, for or the yesterday, for May the 4th. Um, which was Sunday, but we recorded it Sunday, released it yesterday. There's too much. I The cup runneth over. The overthinking cup runneth over. So to find all this, as well as the TFT podcast about teenage pop culture and music, which is a great, which is where Matt takes the gloves off and goes Hodor Beast on everything that irritates him because uh, he's, so, he's so civil on these particular podcasts. But there he aims to confound. What are the terms you use? Confound and... and uh, Alienate. Alienate. Confound and alienate the audience. So if that's something you're looking forward to, check that out. And by all means, and by all accounts, please come to our temple where all the, there's stones for everybody. So, And you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.